Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou thou among women, and and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, we continue our three-part series on the Mass, with Bishop Rhodes offering his reflections on the history and requirements of the introductory rites, as well as the Liturgy of the Word. Then it's on to listener-submitted questions on topics like infant baptisms, Ireland's recent vote to legalize abortion, and his favorite moment as a bishop. If you would like to submit a question for a future show or check out previous episodes, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. Thank you again, Bishop, for joining us today. You're welcome, Kyle. Great to be with you again. Yeah, last week we were talking about the Mass. It was more of an overview, a little bit of the history of it and things like that. Uh, We're actually going to break the Mass down into two different sections. This week we'll talk about the introductory rites and the Liturgy of the Word. Next week we'll follow up with the Liturgy of the Eucharist and the concluding rites. And so I know you've you've given this talk at the Rekindle the Fire Men's Conference last February. And uh, is this a talk that you give often about the Mass, breaking it down not, like this? Not really. I mean, I have obviously speak a lot about the Eucharist, but as far as the parts of the Mass, no, I think that was one of my first major presentations. Although I certainly, as a priest, I would give RCIA classes on, on the parts of the Mass. And uh, we often hear of, I'm familiar with the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist, the introductory rites and the concluding rites are, are they not, I would guess, not nearly as important as the Liturgy of the Word and the Eucharist? They... No, the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist are the major parts okay. of the Mass. But the introductory rites are still important because they prepare us for the celebration. And okay. um, because it's important to be properly disposed to mm-hmm. listen to the Word of God and to celebrate the Eucharist worthily. And that's what the introductory rites do. They prepare us. We recognize that we gather together as God's children, and also it's good to remember that it is Christ himself who's the head of the the church 
who is the principal agent of the Eucharist. He's the high priest of the new covenant. I think it's good to remember that that Jesus is presiding invisibly Hmm. over every celebration of the Eucharist. The bishop or the priest who represents Christ acts in the person of Christ the head as he presides over the assembly. So that's important as we gather to, to remember that. We're gathering together as God's children, as members of his body, the church, with Christ our head presiding invisibly, but visibly represented by the bishop or the priest. So the first thing is the introit, which is the entrance chant. In most parishes, they substitute the introit with an entrance hymn. Mm -hmm. But some places, they they will do the introit, the entrance chant, which really is to focus our attention upon the mystery that we're celebrating during that particular liturgical season. And during that, the priest and, and the ministers usually process in. And when the priest arrives at the sanctuary... He genuflects to the tabernacle and bows to the altar and kisses the altar. It's important to remember the altar isn't just a table. It's called an altar because on it, the sacrifice of Christ will be celebrated. So the priest kisses it because the altar is a sign of Christ's act of love, his total act of love on the cross. The Mass is really his sacrifice of love. We call it the sacrifice of the Mass. And at that point, the priest may incense the altar and the cross. Uh, Again, this is a sign that the Mass is a sacrificial event. And then the priest begins Mass with the sign of the cross, and we all make the sign of the cross. And, And that's significant because we're beginning with this sign of our salvation in Christ. And we invoke the three persons of the Most Holy Trinity every time we make the sign of the cross in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the Mass begins with the sign of the cross and it ends with the sign of the cross when the final blessing is given. And really the the Mass is imbued throughout with the love of the Most Holy Trinity. It's our encounter with God in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. So after the sign of the cross, the priest gives the liturgical greeting. He doesn't say hello or good morning, (laughs) nice to see you, because we're not gathering for a meeting. We're not gathering for uh, a social. We're gathering for the sacred liturgy. So the greeting is a liturgical greeting. Okay. The Lord be with you or the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And the response, as you know, is, and with your spirit. At that point, the priest can make a few introductory remarks about the liturgy to be celebrated. And then we have what is called the penitential act. And it's interesting and also quite important that we begin with this recognition that we are sinners. Now, the penitential act can be replaced on Sundays, especially during Easter time, by the blessing and sprinkling of water, a reminder of baptism. But normally, 
we have the penitential act. And the priest can choose from a few different forms that the missal has. And the first form is the confidior. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, etc. And that's followed by the Kyrie, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. So I often think how important the act of penitence, this penitential act is at the beginning of mass so that we begin mass like the tax collector, not like the Pharisee Hmm. in the temple, that we humbly recognize our sinfulness and our need for God's mercy. And we confess to God that we have not only sinned, but greatly sinned, we say in the Confidior, in our thoughts and words and what we've done and what we've failed to do. And notice it's all in the first person singular in the new translation. The old translation, it was we. Right. Now it's I confess. Mm-hmm. I have sinned. We're confessing this to God and to our brothers and sisters because sin hurts our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Mm-hmm. And we strike our breast during the confidior, acknowledging that we've sinned through our own fault. So we're not blaming others for our faults. We're saying, through my fault, Mm -hmm. through my fault, through my most grievous fault, as we strike our breast. Mm -hmm. And we ask the Blessed Virgin Mary and the angels and saints to pray for us sinners. They obviously support us on our journey to God. They're with us also in the liturgy. Now, this shouldn't make us think in the penitential act that we just dwell on our own misery as sinners because really we're turning with confidence to God for mercy. We're being honest about our sinfulness, but then we're turning to God with trust in his mercy. Next comes the Gloria, which is usually sung. It can't be recited. The Gloria is recited or sung on Sundays and feast days, but Mm -hmm. not in Advent and not in Lent. Okay. And this is a very ancient hymn in which we give glory to God the Father and to the Lamb, the Son. It's a very solemn, very festive hymn. We join our voices with one another and with the saints and angels in praising God. And we begin with the words of the song of the angels to the shepherds on the first Christmas. Glory to God in the highest. And notice the Gloria is kind of exuberant. There really aren't words sufficient to praise God, but notice in the Gloria how we praise God. We, we, it's kind of exuberant. We say, we praise you. We bless you. We glorify you. I mean, we adore you. We glorify you. We give you thanks for your great glory. So we're praising the Most Holy Trinity. It's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. And then after the glory is the opening prayer of the Mass. The opening prayer, the proper name is the Collect, the Collect, because it collects the prayers of the people who are gathered for worship. So that's a good word for people to learn, the Collect. Mm -hmm. It begins with the priest calling the people to pray. He says, let us pray. And then there's a brief moment of silence. We can kind of recollect our, our thoughts. And typically, this prayer changes every week. There are special collects for feasts and memorials 
and other special masses. And it's a Trinitarian prayer. It's addressed to God the Father through Christ in the Holy Spirit. And the prayer, the collect, often will recall God's action in the past and then ask God to act in our lives in the present. It's an opening prayer. It prepares us really for the Liturgy of the Word, to hear the Word of God. So when the collect is finished and the people respond, Amen, everyone sits down, and then we begin the first major part of the Mass, the Liturgy of the Word. All right. Does that collect, does it have to do with the readings a lot of times or feast days and things like that? Well, if it's a special collect for a particular let's say, uh, a mass, uh, a memorial of a saint, yes, it'll refer to that saint. Or if it's a a special feast of the Lord, um, like Christmas or Easter or any feast of the Lord, the Transfiguration, whatever, or a feast of Our Lady, Uh yes, it'll always refer to that feast. Other times, it's more generally the liturgical season. It could be like an Advent theme or a Lenten theme or an Easter theme in the prayer or in ordinary time it can be very ordinary yeah <laughs> kind of general but um yeah it's it's good to be attentive to the prayer though because it kind of sets the mood i'd say for the particular celebration in that liturgy is there a reason why we stand up for all of those things and then we sit down once we start to move into the liturgy of the word yes i mean usually when we pray we either are standing or we're kneeling And usually when we're listening, we're sitting. We're listening to the Word of God in the readings, except for the Gospel we stand. We certainly sit for the homily, which is a good thing because some some of us preach too long. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, coming up, we'll chat more about the Mass, specifically the Liturgy of the Word. And we'll have questions submitted by you right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We've been talking about the Mass here. Last week we had an overview. Today we're talking about the introductory rites and also the Liturgy of the Word. Next week we will kind of move on from that into the Liturgy of the Eucharist and the concluding rites. And you gave us a great explanation of the introductory rites, and there's a lot more to it than I was expecting. Uh, How about the Liturgy of the Word? Yes, okay. Uh, Before I get into that, I I just want to give a little bit of spiritual advice. I think it's a very good practice to read the scriptures of the day earlier. Mm -hmm. Perhaps spending 10 minutes or 15 minutes in meditation, maybe the day before or that morning. I think we get a lot more out of the readings when we pray with them beforehand. That's just Definitely, something yeah. that I, I learned as a seminarian, and it's a very good practice. And you can get them online. You can order the Magnificat. Uh, so anyhow, mm-hmm. when we think about the Liturgy of the Word, you might think, well, how does the church um, choose what readings? Well, first of all, our collection of scripture readings for Mass are contained in a book that, that is called the Lectionary. And this book was revised by the Second Vatican Council, which added a lot more readings from the Old Testament and a three-year cycle of Sunday readings and a two-year cycle of daily readings. Hmm. 
the first reading changes every other year, but the gospel's the same each year at daily masses. Okay. But I want to mention that this was a real blessing from the Second Vatican Council. It opened up so much of the Bible to us in the liturgy. I mean, a large increase in, in passages that we're able to, to hear. But let's talk a little bit about Sunday. When you go to Mass on Sunday, you notice we have four biblical texts in the Liturgy of the Word. We have the first reading from the Old Testament, except in the Easter season. Mm -hmm. If you've noticed in the Easter season, the first reading is from the Acts of the Apostles. Mm -hmm. But we get a lot, we get to listen to a lot of readings from the Old Testament throughout the year. Again, as I mentioned, a three-year cycle. And then we have the responsorial psalm, the psalm of the day, which is either recited or it's sung, chanted. And it's a wonderful way to respond to the Word of God that then we join our voices with uh, generations of people, Jewish and Christian, who've prayed the psalms. Jesus himself prayed the psalms. And then we have the second reading, which is from the New Testament. Usually, the New Testament, uh, a New Testament letter is read semi-continuously. For example, we might hear several weeks in a row a reading from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, but it's not the whole letter. It's just semi-continuous, so it'll have excerpts, basically, mm -hmm. from that letter. And usually, and this is a struggle often for homilists, usually the second reading isn't related to the first reading or the gospel. So the, the first reading and the gospel are related to each other. There's usually a theme that you can see in both the first reading and the gospel. But uh -huh. uh, because it's a semi-continuous reading of a New Testament letter in the second reading, it's, it's, it's not directly related to the for first reading or the gospel. Okay. So then we have the gospel and we have the three year cycle. So we're presently in year B. So if you notice, the gospel is a passage from Mark, Mark's gospel. In year A, last year it was Matthew, and then year C next year will be Luke. Of course, the church's year begins with the first Sunday of Advent. Mm -hmm. So we're in the year of Mark right now, year B. The only exception to that is throughout the year, some readings from the Gospel of St. John are used, especially during the Easter season. That's uh, And that's consistent from year to year, the same Gospel for the same... No, no, it would okay. change. Yeah, it would change. For example, let me... Uh, I said especially during the Easter season, but also in the Lenten season. For example, in year A... During Lent, you have the gospel, for example, of the woman at the well, and another Sunday in Lent, that's in God, John's, from God, John's gospel, uh -huh. and another Sunday in Lent, you have the uh, gospel of the man born blind, mm -hmm. and then another Sunday in Lent in year A, it's the raising of Lazarus. So there are those kinds of exceptions. Okay. Another thing you might notice is the use of the book of the gospels rather than the lectionary. Uh, use the lectionary, which has all the readings, including the gospel, but the church encourages and says it's praiseworthy to use a special book of the gospels. 
that is brought up in procession during the entrance procession, and it's placed on the altar. Mm-hmm. It's a special reverence that's given to the book of the Gospels. It's important to remember that Christ is present through his word. Of course, it's not the substantial presence like we have in the Eucharist, but it is a presence nonetheless. And it's good to have, not only good, it's, it's, we should have brief periods of silence during the liturgy of the word. For example, after each reading and after the homily. So we can digest it. Mm-hmm. to let our hearts grasp the reading and kind of the let the Holy Spirit speak to us. The readings are always read from the ambo, even the responsorial psalm, because it is the word of God. Okay. So the cantor, if the cantor's singing at a another, like a stand, a mm-hmm. music stand or something, they don't stay there when they sing or chant the responsorial psalm. They go to the ambo because that's where the word of God is proclaimed. So we have the dignity of the word of God, which requires a suitable place from which it's proclaimed and toward which the attention of the faithful is directed. And it should be, uh, the ambo should be able to be seen by everybody. It should be stationary. We don't just have movable lecterns. This is an important piece of the furniture of of the liturgy. And also, you shouldn't be doing other things from the ambo. It should be only the readings, the psalm. One exception is at the Easter Vigil, the exultet is done from the ambo. The homily is done from the ambo. And the universal prayer, that is the the petitions that we say at Mass. But we don't... um, you know, it shouldn't be a place where you do all other kinds of announcements and things. And other cantering as well? Should other cantering as well should be elsewhere. Okay. So if a canter's leading hymns or songs, they shouldn't be doing it from the ampo. Okay. Interesting. The responsorial psalm, I want to mention a little bit more about that because sometimes I think we think it's like a, a break. or a, <laughs> right. Do you ever think of that? Like right, it's a yeah. musical interlude. Yeah, um, transition. Yeah, uh-huh. but, it, but it's not. It's a prayer. It's, it is, it's a response to God's word. It's a psalm. It's a song of gratitude and praise, or sometimes it's lament hmm. or joy. I mean, there's different types of psalms. Sure. And the book of Psalms is in the Bible. It's part of God's word. We pray the Psalms in the Liturgy of the Hours, as you know. But what I always think about is, it's good to remember these are something Jesus prayed. He prayed the Psalms. So we're joining in the prayer of Christ. The church is joining in his prayer, and he is the head of the body when we pray the Psalms. One thing that I think is important is um, that we should be able to hear the words of the Psalm clearly. Now, sometimes you can have a missalette or a, a program that you're following along, or if you have your own missal. But, you know, it's important that the cantor or the lector sing it or recite it clearly. And sometimes musical instruments can overpower the voice of the cantor, and you can't even understand the words. So sure. I think we have to be careful about that. I think chant is, is especially appropriate for the responsorial psalm because it enables us to attend to the words. Mm -hmm. It's clearer. 
course, the high point of the liturgy of the word is the reading of the gospel. Okay, so if they're using the book of the gospels, there's special marks of honor and reverence. There's a procession with the book of the gospels. It's incensed at the beginning and it's kissed at the end. And of course, we show by our posture that this is special. We stand for the reading of the gospel. And of course, the reading of, of the gospel is reserved to the ordained. Only a deacon, priest, or bishop can read the gospel. And in the acclamation before the gospel, the Alleluia, or another chant during the Lenten season, is sung and we're really welcoming and greeting the Lord who's about to speak to us in the gospel. Of course, the gospel is followed by the homily, which also can only be given by one who is ordained. Mm -hmm. And the homily should help the listeners fundamentally to grow as disciples. That's the purpose of the homily. It's not just an explanation of the scriptures, though that can be part of it. It's to help help us to live God's word, to grow as disciples. And the church says the homily on Sundays and holy days, the homily can only be omitted for a grave reason. Hmm. Important to remember. And the church also recommends that there be homilies at other masses, daily masses, especially during the seasons of Advent, Lent, and Easter. Okay. Now, after the homily, we have the profession of faith, either the recitation of or chanting of the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. Again, we're talking about Sunday liturgies. And when you think about it, the profession of faith is our response to the Word of God that was just proclaimed in the readings and was explained in the homily. Uh -huh. Then we profess our faith. We confess the great mysteries of our Christian faith by reciting the creed. And of course, we know the content of our faith. It's our faith in God, in the three divine persons of the Holy Trinity. And, I, and it's interesting, this is occurring right in the middle of Mass, and I think it shows our oneness in the faith. And then the last part of the Liturgy of the Word. Mm -hmm. We often speak of it as the intercessions, the petitions, or the prayers of the faithful. The technical title, though, is the universal prayer. The universal prayer. Okay. And the general instruction of the Roman Missal gives us the structure for these prayers. And the prayers should be brief. They shouldn't go on and on. But the structure is usually to be as follows. The first should be for the needs of the church. Second for public authorities and the salvation of the world. Third, for those burdened by any kind of difficulty. And fourth, for the local community. So that's the general structure. But we can be flexible, but that's the general structure. It's good to remember we're bringing the entire world to the altar of God when we pray the universal prayer. It's called universal. We're praying for the whole world. So. When we go to Mass, we're not escaping the needs of the world. Mm -hmm. We bring these needs to the Lord in the universal prayer. For example, praying for, for peace in the world. All right. 
a couple questions I have. One is you mentioned reading the readings beforehand uh, to help us to get more out of them and to when we hear them a second time, maybe even spend some time meditating on them. Uh, any other things? Whenever we walk into a church, you know, there's holy water that we might dip our hand into. We genuflect. Uh, a lot of times it's common to take some time of silence, maybe kneeling down before the mass starts. All of that kind of preparatory work that uh, is that is that important that we do or is there something that we should specifically be doing or, or even maybe required to be doing? No, we're not required, but I think you raise a good point. I, I really encourage people to try to get to mass early because it's hard to really focus and and not be distracted if we're just rushing in at the last minute. Now, sometimes that happens. Sure. You know, if you're a parent and you have a small <laughs> child, you might get yeah. something happens. Uh, but it's really good to be able to be recollected beforehand. I think using the holy water when you come in, it's a wonderful way to begin because you're calling to mind your baptism. Mm-hmm. Um, but how one prays beforehand, I'll just say how, especially when I was a, a layperson, but even sometimes as a priest and bishop, usually I like to kneel down and just kind of present my own particular personal needs to the Lord Mm -hmm. and call to mind particular people that I want to pray for at the beginning. Depends on what's going on in my life, you know, but um, people should feel completely free how they communicate with the Lord and what they want to say to the Lord prior to the beginning of Mass. Again, that's kind of separate from meditating on the readings beforehand, but but I find it helpful to offer my own particular intentions prior to Mass. Sure. Another thing, you mentioned the Gospel reading, and at the beginning of that, we do a, a little sign with our thumb on our forehead, on our mouth, and on our heart. Can you explain what that is? Yes, um, and the priest says qu- very quietly, inaudibly, may the Lord be in my mind, on my lips, and in my heart. Mm-hmm. And that's very good when we do that, to be saying that silently as well, because the Word of God is to enlighten our minds and also should be on our lips, the way we speak, Mm -hmm. in the sense of speaking in a good and holy way. And of course, most importantly, the, the Word of God in our heart. So it's a pretty profound thing. You know, it's interesting. There are certain silent prayers that the priest says throughout the Mass, and a lot of people don't know what those prayers are. You can read them, though, in the Missal. For example, at the end of the Gospel, when the priest kisses the, the book of the Gospels, he'll, or the deacon, he'll say, may the words of the Gospel wipe away our sins. Hmm. That's just a private little prayer. And I'll talk about the private prayers of the priest that he says at the altar when we get to the liturgy of the Eucharist. All right. Well, again, that's going to be next week along with the concluding rites we'll talk about. But if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. Submit your questions there. And coming up, Bishop will answer questions about challenges for the USCCB, infant baptism, and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. As this episode airs, Bishop, you will actually be in Florida for United States Conference of Catholic Bishops biannual meeting. And our first question is maybe perhaps related to that. 
What do you see as a couple of the biggest challenges facing the USCCB in 2018? Kyle, we face so many challenges, to be honest with you. Um, I would say that um, in our country, but also in the world, you know, it, it can be a challenging time. But I, when you look at the history of the church, I don't know when there wasn't a challenging <laughs> right. time. But certainly we see with the growing secularism, especially in the West, including the United States, we have a rise of people who are becoming detached from religious practice. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of our biggest challenges, especially young people, young adults. The rise in what are called the religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who are unaffiliated with any church. Mm -hmm. And um, this is a big challenge for us uh, because a lot of these are former Catholics. So we really need to address that problem, and we are, and that's the theme of the Synod of Bishops in October. But there's, there are ongoing challenges, too. Certainly in areas of moral teaching, we continue to work to promote the dignity of human life, beginning with the respect for the life of the unborn children in the womb. Another challenge for us today, besides abortion, is, is growing threats to people at the end of life, mm -hmm. um, we see slowly more states legalizing physician-assisted suicide right. in euthanasia, so that's an ongoing challenge. Um, another big challenge facing us is, is um, helping our immigrant brothers and sisters, especially those who are undocumented, so many who are active in the life of the church in our parishes but um, not having a path to legalization and, mm -hmm. and living in fear of deportation. We continue to uh, be very concerned about our DACA youth, mm -hmm. um, those who were brought here by their parents when they were often young children, when they were minors, and this is their home, but they don't have legal status. That's another challenge. Another challenge would be the growing influence of gender ideology, the idea that a person can choose their own gender different from their biological sex, mm -hmm. that's a, uh, goes totally against um, Christian anthropology. We believe that God created us male or female. So the growing movement to um, inculcate the idea that, that people can choose their gender that's very problematic so yeah there i know you asked for just a couple of the biggest challenges yeah. um religious liberty though we've had some victories in the past year we can't be complacent um but there's still a lot of efforts to force us to cooperate with things that are against christian teaching and our catholic moral teachings so yeah we we have our hands full yeah. <laughs> As always, like you said. All right, Todd Field said, I have a question on Catholic infant baptism. All three of mine are baptized, I assume his children. All three of mine are baptized in the Catholic Church. My sister's family isn't Catholic, and my nieces and nephews aren't baptized yet. Any suggestion on material supporting infant baptism? I'm embarrassed to say I'm not equipped to answer questions on why we have babies baptized. Todd, that's a good question, and... Um I think the, um, the easiest and best answer would simply be that this is the constant tradition 
of the church, a teaching that goes back to the apostles. When Jesus gave the command to go out and baptize, he didn't restrict baptism to adults. Mm-hmm. Um, could you imagine the apostles standing before a crowd announcing the new life in Christ, the new covenant, and then saying, but your children are excluded? You know, yeah. um, they, they, you have to wait and they can decide for themselves. That never was the case. Infant baptism goes back to the apostles. And there are some who criticize this, and, and usually they're fundamentalists, and they say that baptism is for adults and only older children because they say it should be administered only after someone has undergone a born-again experience, you know, who've accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And I think um, that's truly a novelty and innovation. <laughs> that was not the thinking of the early Christians by any means. So it was really, we even have this question coming up in one of the early councils of the church, the Council of Carthage in the third century. So the year 252 AD. At that council, the question was was asked about whether babies should be baptized or not. And there was no question. They said, this has been the tradition. Baptize as soon as possible. That was the response. And um, St. Augustine and others. Now, now St. Augustine developed more the reasons for it. Of course, we know baptism cleanses from sin and everyone is born with original sin. So even for an infant, it's important to be cleansed of original sin. As far as what to read, I, I would recommend to Todd reading the catechism, the section about baptism, because then you see what the effects are. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the effects of, of baptism, new life in Christ, becoming adopted sons and daughters of God, why would we not want our children to have those great gifts? Yeah. And you know, there's, there's no reason why someone should be denied just because they're not old enough. Someone will say, well, isn't there a need to have faith in order for baptism? The answer to that is yes. So a baby or an infant is baptized with the faith of the church. Hmm. Um, it's true, they don't yet have the capacity to profess faith or to have an understanding of the faith, but there's still a profession of faith at every baptism. But the one who makes the profession, the ones are the parents and mm-hmm. the godparents. So it's the church. They're baptized in the faith of the church. All right. Lillian Lothamer from St. Charles in Fort Wayne has a nice follow-up question to this. Hi, Bishop Rhodes. I was baptized a Byzantine Catholic and was confirmed as an infant. When my school classmates were learning about confirmation, I was excluded from the lessons and even left in the classroom while they went to the church to prepare for confirmation. I never had the training or chose a saint for a confirmation name. I did not choose a sponsor. I know I cannot receive confirmation again, but I feel I never got to make that choice on my own. Any suggestions on how I can come closer to the Holy Spirit through my confirmation and see his gifts in my life? Thank you, Lillian. It's too bad you weren't in class, even though you were already confirmed. It would be good to have studied and learned more about the confirmation that you received as an infant. Yes, that is the practice of our Eastern Catholic churches, the Byzantine Catholics and others. But I would mention, um, and I said this to Todd, 
I, I recommended to Todd to read the Catechism on the Sacrament of Baptism. So Lillian, I recommend that you read <laughs> the Catechism on Confirmation because so that you have a, a better understanding of, of this wonderful sacrament. Another thing about coming closer to the Holy Spirit, which you asked, I would recommend saying the prayer, the Come Holy Spirit prayer. Now, I understand you're a Byzantine Catholic, and and there may be other prayers in the Byzantine Church. Uh, I, I think one of the gifts of our Eastern Catholics is they give a lot of emphasis to the Holy Spirit in their liturgy and in their prayers. Hmm. And I think to to also study the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit and to reflect on them. One thing you might want to do, Pope Francis, a few years ago, gave a wonderful series of audience talks on each of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. I've used some of those ideas in my confirmation homilies, but you might want to consider like maybe t- taking a, one of the gifts each week and, and thinking about it and how it, that gift can be operative in your life. Uh-huh. It's not like magic. The gifts don't operate automatically. We have to open ourselves to the gifts, to each of the gifts. And there are times where you need special need of a gift. I mean, one can think, for example, if, if one is um, tempted not to go to Sunday Mass, pray for that gift of piety. You know, the gift of piety is, is the desire to worship God. Or if you're trying to make a, a difficult decision, you're not sure what the right decision is, pray for that gift of counsel. The Holy Spirit is the counselor. If you're in a situation where you're not really defending the faith as you should, pray for that gift of fortitude, you know, that courage that comes from the Holy Spirit to live our faith and profess it even if it's not popular or we might get criticized for it. Mm-hmm. So those are just a few ideas, Lillian. Yeah. All right. Well, you can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. We've got more of your questions coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman asking questions that you've submitted online. One of our listeners asked, when is the appropriate time to bow before receiving communion? Is it while the person in front of me is receiving communion or as I like to do, as I say, amen to the priest after he says the body of Christ? Good question. There's no specific directive on this. So either way is fine. You can bow while the person in front of you is receiving communion or you can bow after that as that person is is walking away. So it's really up to you. All right. Another question was, what are your thoughts on Ireland's recent vote to amend the country's constitution, making abortion legal? I thought Ireland was mostly Catholic, and yet the vote was overwhelmingly in favor and is being called revolutionary. Yeah, it's very tragic. But it's, it's reflective of, I'd say, the decline in faith in Ireland, kind of the secularism that we've seen in other, uh, many other, especially Western European countries, we didn't see in Ireland until the last couple decades where less people are going to church. Mm-hmm. Um, they ha- also had the problem of sexual abuse of minors by priests, which had a devastating effect. So I think this vote to 
legalize abortion shows us that that Ireland, like the United States and other countries of Western Europe, need needs a new evangelization. Hmm. All right. Well, maybe we can end on a lighter note. Finally, somebody asked, "Have you had a favorite moment being a priest and bishop?" Yes, I would say ten days ago, ordaining. <laughs> Five men to the priesthood. Yeah. And every year, I'd say ordinations are my favorite moments. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Join us next Wednesday at noon as we conclude our series on the Mass with Bishop offering his reflections on the Liturgy of the Eucharist and the concluding rites. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.